Welcome back to another episode of Well, Not Perfect. Today, I have Vanessa Bonds on the show, and let me tell you, this was one of the most thought-provoking conversations I have had on the podcast to date. Vanessa is a social psychologist and a professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University and holds a PhD in psychology from Columbia University and an AB from Brown. Professor Bonds is an expert on social influence, compliance, and consent, and investigates why it's so hard to say no. Her research has been published in top academic journals in psychology, management, and law. In her first book, You Have More Influence Than You Think, was published in September. I found my conversation with Professor Bonds to be absolutely fascinating on both a personal and professional level. Her insight helped me understand a lot about myself and the people around me. Again and again, it was these studies showing that whatever we're insecure about, other people are not noticing as much as us. When we think that no one sort of notices us and the things that we're doing to try to make a difference, all these moments where we really doubt ourselves and the impact that we're having on other people, it's often a bias that we're so focused on the negative and other people are not. In this episode, you will learn why so many of us struggle to say no, biases that influence the way we see the world and how the world sees us, and why we tend to be harder on ourselves than others around us. Welcome to another episode of Well, Not Perfect. One of my first questions is when you wrote a book, did someone kind of inspire you to do that or what made you say yes to that or make that decision? So I had always wanted to write a book and had been sort of drafting books since I was in my twenties and had nothing to say just because I liked writing. And then, you know, I never really had anything that was, I think, worthy of being a book. And then by the time I actually wound up writing this book, I had been doing research for 15 years and I feel like I felt like I had something worthwhile to say, something I felt confident in the empirics, you know? And so at that point, you know, I just put all that sort of energy towards writing into this book. Mm-hmm. And as a researcher and writer, and probably like your mom, I heard on the podcast that I listened to, what's your day-to-day look like? How do you kind of research and write? I mean, it's, it's such a fascinating, I think it's kind of almost a dream of mine. Like if I were to do something, I think I would go into academic research. So what's your day look like? Yeah. I mean, I'd say the, the main sort of things that I have to do are teach because I'm a professor. Um, and so everything kind of revolves around teaching for the most part, which means that when I'm not teaching, like in the summer, I have a much more flexible schedule where I can, you know, meet with my graduate students when they have something they want to talk about, plan out studies we're going to run, analyze data, spend some time writing. And it's all kind of very flexible. And then the semester hits, like, for example, we'll start at the end of August, the semester will be back uh, on, and then it'll be so much dedicated to teaching because I teach a 300 person class. It's just lots of logistics and lots of emails and, uh, and then you do the actual lectures and everything. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, speaking of influence, you know, to be a professor, there's so much influence because there's those students that it's the right time in the right place. And they sit in the classroom and something inspires them. And I remember being very influenced by my professor in sociology at Loyola Mm -hmm. Chicago. And he told me like the career path that I should take. And it's the one I did take. And he really inspired me and I didn't know it at the time, but when I look back, I'm like, it all started with him, Dr. Marcel Fredericks. And yeah. yeah, so I, I just really admire the, the influence that professors have because it's such a healthy relationship to admire or to be influenced by a teacher or a supervisor or whatever it is. I think it's just really, really amazing. You write about that. Do you know that you're influencing when you're teaching? Do you feel that? Yeah. So my sort of the opening story in the book is about this idea that when you're in front of the room, right, in front of a, a lecture hall, looking at all these faces, it's just, you have no idea what's sinking in or whether anyone's taking it away. And like, there are a lot of bored looking faces out there. Trust me, like you actually see them all and you're like, oh my God, are they even listening? 
And then, you know, you'll months will go by and you'll get an email from a student that's like, I took something you said in your class to heart. It totally changed my life. Or like you said, like I, I chose this career direction because of something you said in office hours or something. And so that is a lot of what inspired the book, that kind of experience over and over where I was like, you don't see it. Like you can't see inside someone's head. You don't know the things that you said that they keep thinking about later on. And then every once in a while, you get this little sliver of insight into that happening, you know, and it just means so much and it keeps you going and it makes you realize actually all those like blank looking faces might not be so blank on the inside. They might really be listening. And so I think that was definitely a huge inspiration was having those, those kinds of moments, you know, they're just so meaningful. Yeah. I, totally agree with you where the influence isn't necessarily read right away. So if you're looking at body language, you may not feel reinforced that you're influencing, but maybe for me, when I speak, I look at the person who's nodding and smiling and giving me the social cues to keep going as a public speaker. That's just a skill or talent to like discipline yourself. Cause you want to look at everyone who's not making good body language towards you. You always want to look at the negatives, not the positives. So it's a discipline and a, and a skill to focus on that one in the room. And I had Dr. Christopher Carr, he's the psychologist at the Green Bay Packers. And he said, you know, I don't try to sway the people in the room who don't like me. I talk to the people in the room who like me and trust me. And those are the people that I focus on. And it it is a really good mindset to have, because I think you could talk a lot about this. I'd love to hear your opinion is why are we focused on the person in the room that doesn't give us good body language? Why don't we naturally focus on the person that is more interested in us? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because I actually talk a lot about this in the book about the idea that when you're in the front of the room, like we think that the person with the influence is the person standing in the front of the room, right? The person actually speaking, But as you're talking about, like when you're the one in the front of the room, you're looking at everybody's face. Like you were so focused on, you know, who is nodding and smiling and seems to be like agreeing with what you're saying and who is grumpy and seems like they don't get it. And it is really hard not to get sort of focused on those people. And we change our behavior accordingly. Like if you're, you know, the person who then turns around and just tries to focus on the people who are like smiling and nodding, you keep saying the things that make them smile and nod. If you are focused on the people who are looking like really grumpy and disengaged, you know, you change the things you say, you actually change what you're saying. And so this idea, this idea that, you know, the person in the front of the room is the one with influence, who's like putting their perspectives out there and it's not a two-way street is just wrong, right? Even just sitting there in the audience, you're having an impact. That person is looking at you. They're noticing, they're adjusting their behavior and it can kind of change the messages you're exposed to. And even I go on to talk about it, it can even change how that person at the front of the room thinks about something, right? Because I'm sure, you know, like if you've given a talk to a group and they just don't respond, you change it, right? You realize like maybe that, maybe this take I had wasn't quite right. So I'm going to change my take. It's not just like here, I'm going to influence you. It's like, you've influenced me now. And I'm going to go and and rethink some of the things I was putting out there. It's so fascinating. I had one presentation right after COVID where I was in person with a group of teachers at a school that I had been virtual with and had really good relationships with. And it was an in-person presentation as mental health professional development, how to manage behaviors in the classroom from a mental health lens was the presentation. And also a little bit of how to take care of yourself as an educator to sustain the stressors that you have. And I hadn't really been in a mask before presenting because I was always virtual. And then what happened was I took a deep breath in and the mask went in my mouth and I panicked mentally and physically, just that feeling of not being able to breathe. And I thought, how am I going to do this for 90 minutes? And all I could think about was how I was going to do this for 90 minutes. So I kept fussing with my mask. And then I noticed that people were not enjoying the presentation. And I was focused on the mask and it was just a really, really difficult presentation. And it was by far one of the worst that I did, but I just remember focusing on the people who seemed to be uncomfortable and I was uncomfortable. And it was just such a bad experience that 
the presentation I did after that, I kept referring back to that one, not the other hundred that I've had successes with, or the people in the room who would give me the benefit of the doubt because they knew me all of my positive thinking went out the door and presentation after presentation, I had this, you know, this flashback that really was like stuck in my head. And with time, it kind of washed away, but that was one for me where I couldn't recover, um, in the short term and in the long term. it just stuck with me. And it was like the imposter syndrome, like finally someone caught me. Like, finally they know that I'm not a good presenter and just reinforced this like really awful feeling or fear that I had had. Like, am I, am I allowed to be paid for speaking? Should I be in front of teachers? I'm not a teacher. It was hard. It was so hard. So do you, do you find the imposter syndrome can like kind of fit in when you're doubting yourself in front of the room? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and to get back to your earlier question, because it kind of relates to this about like just focusing on the, you know, the people who are not responding or who look uncomfortable or like the negative experience, you know, there's, there's a number of findings in psychology that suggest that we first of all have this negativity bias, right? So for all the good things that happen, all those positive presentations, all those smiling people, it's the negative that we focus on, right? That just looms so much larger. Our memory for that is so much longer. It's such a more intense experience, negativity. You know, I'm sure you must be familiar with like John Gottman's work, right? On, on couples where it's like, you know, for every five positive things, you can have one negative thing. But once that ratio kind of gets off and you have more negative to positive, that's a problem in the relationship. And so there are just so many examples of this where we just focus so much more on the negative and especially when it's other people, right? Because one of the fundamental needs that we have as humans is to belong, right? It's baked into our DNA sort of evolutionarily. Like we had to be part of the tribe and the group. And so this idea that people might not like us, that maybe there's some challenge to our belongingness in this group, you know, that we're being judged somehow. It's terrifying, you know, that we, we have these intense emotional experiences that really are based in evolution to those kinds of situations. Mm -hmm. And the one I think really reassuring thing to me is that the research I review in the book, like so much of the research that my colleagues and I do shows that our ideas about what's happening and how negatively we're being judged and what other people are focusing on are almost always miscalibrated, right? We tend to assume that people are making more negative judgments of us than they actually are. We tend to think that people are focusing on those same like embarrassing moments that we are when in fact they're, they're taking a much more sort of holistic takeaway, or they're making a more holistic judgment of us basically like, okay, you know, I might notice that, you know, you weren't at the top of your game this time, or maybe you seemed kind of uncomfortable. There were a couple, but usually at the end of like a presentation, I don't remember that one little moment where the speaker, you know, stumbled. I, this happens all the time. Like, you know, when I give a talk, I remember every single little stumble right? I lost my word or, you know, I lost my train of thought or, and it, for me, it felt like forever. But when I'm watching other people present, I, I barely notice that. Or if I notice it in the moment, you know, like two minutes later, I've forgotten it. And by the end of the presentation, I definitely don't remember it, but we just focus on these little, these little things. Cause that's what we're worried about. You know? Yeah. I think we focus on the little things that we're most insecure about too. So I have been through something really extremely unique and really almost surreal this last couple of weeks. And, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about my experiences and to see if you could kind of unpack that because I'm unpacking a lot of thoughts and questions. And I really want to ask you a couple of them. So it's a little bit on the spot, but the, the cliff notes version is that I supported the Highland park survivors after the 4th of July shooting. And I had gone from one phone call on 4th of July to a superintendent offering to support the community the following day with counseling services. And that one phone call turned into something across the span of a couple of weeks in terms of counseling and access to mental health. That's really extraordinary. And 
I'm really proud to say that it's getting attention on the Senate level to maybe create some case studies around mental health responses after mass shootings. But the level of impact that that had, I wasn't prepared for. And I wasn't prepared for the attention and the the compliments or the sort of the reactions from people. As you can tell, I'm still trying to like process it. So my first question is, how how does you know one major tra- tragedy and one request from me on Facebook to get therapists to volunteer for services, one post goes viral. How does one person make one phone call like I did? make one post like I did and then get 700 volunteers after a tragedy. Like what's, what's that? What is that on the, on a social behavioral level? Could you kind of respond to that? And I'd love to hear your thoughts. Sure. I mean, there's so many things going on there, right? So one is the, the, you know, use of, you know, Twitter, I guess, was it or Facebook just to Facebook post. Yeah. So one is sort of the use of technology or social media. So there's research showing that we have an invisible audience online. And so many of us will post things and feel like we're just posting into the void, right? And in fact, many more people see our posts than we think. Uh, we tend to judge you know, how many people see our posts based on how many likes and engagements we get. And I'm sure you've also got a ton of likes and engagements, but you know, there is when we see something go viral or when we see very clearly or concretely how many people really do see our posts, you know, it can be really surprising because all of a sudden that invisible audience becomes very visible. And then of course there's a snowball effect, like going viral is its own kind of thing. Um, so there is a sense of like, we feel like we're kind of posting into the void, but in fact, that's often not true. A lot of people are seeing and being impacted by the things that we post for better and worse. And then there's this idea that so many of us, we have this kind of theory about other people that they're not as helpful as they really are, that, you know, people are more selfish than they really are, that they're more motivated by incentives as opposed to, you know, empathy and, you know, pro-sociality and things like that. When in fact, people really do want to help so much more than we expect. Um, So, you know, we've done studies for 15 years where we've had people go ask other people for help and they are regularly, it's such a consistent effect, twice as likely as we think to actually help when you reach out and ask. So there's a researcher, Dale Miller, who calls this the myth of self-interest. Like we have this myth about other people, right? This kind of thought that they're, they're not as helpful as they actually are. And so when people do help, especially on the kind of level you're describing, you know, it's so surprising to us because it's an intense level, right? You know, you're talking about a unique experience, right? Not everybody has this experience, but in our studies, like everyone in our studies almost is surprised by how helpful people are on a smaller level, right? That this one person would actually agree to this request I made. And so that just, it kind of challenges our theory about other people for the better, you know? I love that. I think that's really true. I think they wanted to do something to gain some control and gain some contribution that they left their practices for a half a day, one day, completely voluntary and showed up and did amazing work. And it was, it was really inspiring to see that their, but then their influence on their community found more therapists and then found more therapists. So then we became, we became overwhelmed with the amount of, um, offerings to support and help. And that creates its own barriers because you want to invite people in to help, but at some point there's too much help. There's too, there's an overwhelm response. So it was really interesting to see that it wasn't my influence. It was the reshare influence of that person. And that person called her three friends and her three friends called her nine friends. And then her friends called the national association of social work. And it went to a national level. So it was really the influence of the snowball effect of influences was really powerful. Even such thing as a request that we, we, we requested squishmallows these really special stuffed animals, very soft. You can use them as pillows. They're like the beanie babies of the nineties. Yeah. And 
I asked for some and they started coming in the thousands, mm-hmm. the, the maker corporate, corporate here, Walgreens here. I mean, everyone was donating squishmallows to the point where we're like, they're like no more squishmallows. Yeah. So even, so, so even the influence of a request of a squishmallow, you know, those things we're sitting back, like, how did this happen? You know, how did we get thousands of squishmallows and how do we get hundreds of therapists and fascinating, fascinating, really. And then the influence also internally, my question is, you know, when there's chaos and it's disorganized and no one's stepping up and I stepped up just to make a number system, you know, we had community members coming in, the therapist didn't know how to get assigned to them. We didn't know how to match. And I just created a operationalized, a number system to kind of get a flow going And then as soon as I volunteered to make a number system, I became the leader Mm -hmm. and every day the leadership just advanced and advanced. And I'm kind of wondering what is, what is like the leadership and influence? Like once you become the leader, how all of a sudden do you have so much influence? Like who makes that decision? Because no one elected me. I just offered a number system and it got to the point where I was like the point of contact with the FBI and the Red Cross. So how does one volunteer create this influence and becomes a leader so organically? Yeah, I mean, so I think it also goes back to this idea, like when a tragedy happens, right, there is this outpouring of empathy and so many people feel like I want to help, but I don't know what to do. And really it's about channeling that, that desire to help. Like you tell people like, this is actually how you can help. And it's so important because, you know, we've seen in like, you know, when, when hurricanes have happened and things like that, people send all these, you know, stuffed animals and then a giant pile is rotting on the beach, right? Because people are just, they're so desperate to help. They're just sending whatever they can think of. But in the end, if there's not someone sort of channeling it and saying, this is actually what we need, right? This is the effective way to help so that people can feel efficacious and like they're really doing something and they can channel that in a way that is useful. It's, you know, you kind of need that person doing that. It sounds like you stepped up and you were like all that, all those feelings people are having where they're just like, oh my God, I want to help. And I don't know how here's this person who is telling me how right? This person knows how to channel that feeling, you know, this person is trustworthy. That's another point, you know, it's not just like anybody, it's someone who's credentialed. Um, And yeah, I mean, getting to sort of the idea of becoming sort of a leader organically, like we talk a lot about this idea that we think of leadership and power as being about authority, like you need a certain position, but so much is about social connection, right? You suddenly became a hub of connection and then also about informational influence so you just knew you like you were the keeper of the information and that is so powerful and actually we talk about it a lot in like organizational behavior in terms of people who are not in positions of power like how you kind of uh, influence up and so much of it is by being the key like having all that information you know that gives you so much power and influence and people even above you look to you as like the keeper of the knowledge right so you might think fbi is like the fbi but like you had you were the keeper of the knowledge you know yeah that's huge because i was the keeper of the knowledge in terms of clinical clinical requirements so the superintendent and the principals who aren't clinical look to me and say, well, you're the clinical information holder. So you tell us how we need to run this. And then the, the clinicians that we had in the room, we had 70 clinicians in the science room deploying to 58 classrooms, doing individual sessions in 58 different rooms in a one hour session. And we cycled that through in three hour shifts. And then I became the operational information holder because I was there nine to nine. So I was information holder of the operations. And then also I was information holder of coordinating with FBI, the Red Cross, and then the city. So I became like this one person and it eventually was too much. So eventually it became impossible for me to continue in that position. And I had to really find a way to exit because it wasn't sustainable, but it got to a point where it was so triage and acute that I couldn't properly train someone to share the responsibility. It just got to a point where there was no stepping back. It was just more, 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 more for days and days. But that actually answers my question, which is like, how did all of a sudden everyone just, you know, uh, um, listen and execute and how did they 
agree? And how did I become, you know, a decision maker with these high level people? And it's because I had, I had the hub of information from every tentacle that nobody else had, like no one else could hold all of the information. Cause mostly cause I was a clinician put into a federal local government system that we were supporting thousands of th- uh, thousands of community members that those public figures cared about. So you solved a huge piece for me. And so when you say managing, like, so like, it's not the CEO maybe that has all the influence. It might be the COO or it might be like the director, the person who holds the information. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, so we, we often differentiate sort of power and status and influence and like the CEO may have all the power, right? Because they could, they're in control of the resources that all those other people are allowed to access, right? Like the CEO could fire those people. They could say, no, you're not getting any money for this. So they have potentially more power or most likely more power, but in terms of influence, like sway, getting things done, then those people may have more of that, right? Because they actually are either the keepers of the knowledge or, you know, another thing is I mentioned status, like they may be respected by people. And so people are going to listen to them, even if they don't have the same sort of hierarchical power as somebody else. It's interesting too, because you were, it sounds like you were one of the first movers and like one of the simplest, and I just always find very amusing findings and organizational behavior is that if you get a group together, the person most likely to emerge as the leader is the person who speaks first, right? Like you just speak and all of a sudden everyone's looking to you. Like you had enough confidence to go first. Often extroverts tend to emerge as leaders in groups because they are the ones who are going to start speaking, but people are looking for leadership. There's this, we like to act like we don't want hierarchy, but actually hierarchy is how we efficiently get things done. If like we're willing to listen to someone and someone's willing to coordinate and we're all going to sort of cooperate under them. And so we actually do prefer when there is a hierarchy, like we want to know who's in charge here. And so the first person who moves, and if this person actually seems to know what they're talking about, and you know, they're starting to accumulate all this knowledge and information, like we're going to run with that. Right. Wow. That's so, that's so fascinating. Cause yeah, on 4th of July, I called the superintendent who I knew. And I said, we've discussed with mental health crisis, such as like a student suicide that my, my practice, myself and my network will provide 20 therapists immediately to you at the high school that was already decided on here in my town. And so I called her and I said, Hey, you know, that thing that we discussed, I can do that tomorrow for Highland park. I just need, you know, the Highland park people to say yes, because she was, um, a superintendent one city over and she was like, okay, let me make a call. And so I sat tight till Monday at 1030 at night. And I finally got the call when they got out of their meetings and said, yes, we'd like you to have therapists here, which was a huge act of trust and faith because they didn't know who those therapists were going to be. And they didn't know how that was all going to work, but the city's response was show up, we'll figure it out. And so we showed up and I was equal. I was one of the 20 and I just was friends with them. And yeah, I, you know, we sat there until people started walking in and we didn't know how to mobilize the therapist waiting to the community members walking in. And it was just this like really awkward experience. And I thought, this is not, this is not a good experience for someone who's been traumatized sitting there waiting in a room of therapists, trying to figure out who's going to go say hi. Like the anxiety was so high in the room. I was like, let's just take the emotion out, get an operation and like, let's get things moving. And so the response that I often have is like, how did you mobilize so fast? And in my mind, fortunately for Dr. Dr. Herman and I, we had already discussed it. So the mobilization was, you know, small. Um, And then the city, you know, requested us to continue because they actually, you know, they prioritize mental health. So that was, that was really amazing. Throughout my 10 years as a therapist, I've learned a thing or two about growth. I've had the honor of supporting clients and becoming more resilient people, overcoming obstacles, and achieving their goals. What I've learned through this process is that there are five essential steps in every growth journey. With the goal of making personal growth accessible to all, I use these steps to create a planner series so that anyone can work on their growth anytime and anywhere. Each step includes pages of insight and skills from my personal and professional experiences, 
and ends with 30 days of space for you to practice what you've learned. Personal growth isn't a quick process, but this series is designed to make it easy and fun. Learn more at www.simplybecounseling.net slash planners. And be sure to check out the subscription option, which gets you a planner delivered to your door every month for the next five months. Since you're a Well Not Perfect listener, you can get 10% off on any order using code WELLNOTPERFECT. There's no better day than today to tap into your own growth and resiliency. So a lot of people have great ideas and a lot of people can execute that, but they don't want to ask for help. Why don't people like to ask for help? What's kind of behind that for them? Yeah. I mean, so asking for help, right. Opens you up to all sorts of vulnerability. You really make yourself vulnerable to another person. You know, it's obvious that sort of you're, you're saying I can't do something on my own. And we worry that we're going to be judged for that, that we actually need the help to begin with. But the other aspect is it's really sort of a, a test of our social worth and our relationships, because if we ask someone for something, we're opening up, we're putting things on the table and they might say no. And that no could be so hurtful because it suggests something about like, oh, I wasn't worthy of the help or what I was asking there. Maybe there was something wrong with what I was asking, or maybe, you know, this person isn't as nice as I thought they were. Maybe our relationship isn't as close as I thought it was. So there's just so, it feels like there's so much at stake, even if it's happening sort of unconsciously where we're not accessing those exact, you know, sorts of concerns, all that is kind of under the hood when we ask for help. And Mm -hmm. the interesting thing is when someone says no, you know, in our studies, we find that it's mostly because uh, of some circumstantial reason. It's not for any of those reasons. It's not because they don't like you or, or they don't care about you or, you know, they're not a nice person or whatever it might be, like all the sorts of conclusions we might draw from that. In fact, it's usually circumstantial. I just don't have time or I don't have the necessary, you know, knowledge or something like that. But in that moment, right, we feel like so much is at stake. Feel rejected. Mm -hmm. So when people are saying yes, then they are giving their time and their resources. When people say no, they're not, they're not able to give their time and their resources. However, people respond by feeling rejected or they make it really personalized. How do, how do we maybe stop taking it personal and how do we reframe that in our minds to feel less negative about getting a no. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so as I mentioned, when, when people say no, we tend, we've in our studies, you know, we've sent people out and they ask people for favors. So we have them ask for things like, can I borrow your cell phone to make a call? Like I'm stuck and I need to make a call. Um, They ask for charitable donations. They ask for someone to escort them, you know, a few blocks away to to a location that they supposedly can't find. Um, And they go up to these strangers and they ask for these favors. And first of all, we find that people are twice as likely to say yes as people think. So they're actually less likely to be rejected than they are expecting when they go and make these requests. But then we also have studies where we look at what happens when someone does say no, because people do say no, right? Not everybody agrees, even though it's more people than than we might expect. And so what happens is when someone says no to one of these requests, our participants, when we ask them, why do you think that happened? They think it's because that's just not a helpful person, right? They kind of attribute it to like the type of person that they asked. But actually, when we have them go and ask them for a second thing, that same person, so they get a no, now ask them one more thing. The person who said no is actually more likely to say yes to the second request because it's not that they're not helpful, right? And they actually, it's hard to say no, right? They still felt guilty and bad, like they let somebody down. Even the stranger, like you just feel bad saying no to someone who needs your help. And so in fact, when they could help with a second request, they were more likely to go ahead and do it. So while people thought like, oh, this person's just unhelpful and maybe I'll, I'll never ask that person again for help. In fact, you know, that person was helpful and it was just a circumstantial reason that they said no. And I think reminding ourselves of that is one way to sort of feel better when we do get a no, that next time you'll probably get a yes. 
and it's not about you. It's not about the relationship, you know? Yeah. I think back to like the evolutionary purpose of emotions and, you know, feeling rejected is I think the threat that you're going to be pushed out of your tribe because someone said no to you. And that might mean that you're not as connected or you're not going to have resources to survive. So I think the no's are painful when we get to that evolutionary level of our emotions, yet we are so much more psychologically advanced to kind of override that and say a reframe. And just, just because I said no due to resources or time, it does not mean that they're rejecting me and pushing me out of my social group or out of like that click at the workplace or something. So I think what you're saying is really true. How much do you look at emotions in like also the cognitive biases? Is there kind of like a hand in hand kind of evaluation? Yeah, definitely. So what we find in our studies or the explanation behind why we think people are more likely to say no to us than they actually are is that first of all, we're really bad at mind reading. So we have a cognitive bias called egocentrism where we sort of anchor on our own experience and we have a really hard time adjusting and kind of figuring out, all right, now what is that other person's experience? And when you're asking for help, you know, you're so focused on your own insecurities and anxieties and how awkward it is to go up to someone and ask for help. And so we're really anchored on that, this fear of rejection. And because of that, we don't realize the other person is actually feeling very similar, but in sort of a different direction. And so, as you said, the fear of rejection is very tied to these sort of evolutionary feelings of, you know, I'm being rejected from my group or my tribe, or I, I, you know, it challenges my sense of belonging. And on the other hand, rejecting someone is also associated with all those fears, right? If you say no to someone, if you reject someone, you're pushing away your tribe, you're signaling that maybe you're not a helpful person that they want to continue a relationship with. You're signaling that maybe that relationship isn't as important to you as that person might've thought, right? And so all those same insecurities and fears are happening on the other side but we forget that when we're the ones asking. And so if you kind of flip the script and imagine like someone coming up to you and asking for help, how hard is it to say no? It's so hard for many of us to say no. And so uh, all that's kind of going on in that, that scenario. So really, so really like relational people, people who really value relationships, the negative label of that could be people pleaser, but people who just really enjoy supporting other people, the no's would be so hard for them to say no, because they're rejecting what they love the most, which is like connection and people. So it's a really good explanation for why no is hard for like relational people who just always want to keep people close versus someone who may be less relational. It's okay. They feel better. They feel more able to say no without the emotions of, Ooh, this is one less connection that I have now, or like, Ooh, there's consequences to saying no. So I imagine there's a spectrum of the more relational you are in your life, the harder it is to say no, because you want to keep that connection and the less relational, the easier it is to kind of say no. My thought to that too is, you know, the less connected, it's like a high up boss could say no to people who they're not connected to. It's easier to say no to people who you're not physically or mentally connected to versus it's harder for a manager to say no, because they have to work with that person every single day. So there's yeah. probably like degrees to say no based on like proximity, right? Yeah. And one of, one of the interesting things that we look at, or I talk about, at least in the book is these kind of dynamics when there's, you know, um, these power differentials when you're asking for something, right? So if you're in a position of power and you ask someone in a lower position of power for something, it's even harder for them to say no, right? Because you're in a position of power. But actually when you're in a posi position of power at the same time, you're really bad at checking in on other people and making sure the things you're saying don't offend them or make them feel uncomfortable. And so you're more likely to kind of make these requests assuming that someone could feel totally comfortable saying no when in fact they, they don't, right? And so there's this kind of risk of potentially abusing your power. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, also people in, in positions of lower power often forget that people in higher positions of power are also human. And so it's actually really hard to say no, even when sort of someone who is lower than you on the you know corporate ladder or whatever organizational ladder, when they ask you for something, it's also really hard to say no. So 
I interviewed some deans uh, at my school as part of a project and just talked about like when you first became dean, like what were some of the challenges? And one of them was the fact that all of a sudden, all these people who are your colleagues, who you really admire and respect, they have to come ask you for resources. And lots of times you have to say no. And like, that is not, it doesn't come easily for anybody, even when you're in a position of power. Mm -hmm. Is there a way to say no, that makes all parties feel better? Yeah. So, you know, it kind of goes back to all those fears we have when we do ask for something, right? So is it about me that you would say no? Is it about our relationship? Is it about you? And so you sort of want to say no in a way that diffuses all those concerns that says it's not about you. It's not that you're asking for something wrong or that I don't respect you and think you're great. It's not about me. I'm actually a really helpful person. And actually, maybe I'd say yes to this other thing. And it's not about our relationship, right? So we're still good. So you want to say no in a way that kind of mitigates all those worries. And so one way is, of course, to point to things external to that person in the relationship and like really make it clear. The reason I'm saying no is because of the circumstantial thing, you know, and maybe if you came back and asked this way, or you asked for this kind of thing, I'd be able to help you out. And that signals like, I want to help, you know, it shows that, which most people truly do, but I just can't because of this external thing that's holding me back. Yeah. I have recently have a friend who, a newer friend, um, just through our kids at school. And when I was trying to make plans with her, I really enjoyed her responses because her nose were knows because of the circumstances and let's, let's do something next week or, and let's connect after my busy season's over. And so she kind of pointed to the future, like, and I want to keep going rather than the, no, I no, I'm busy at work or no, we're on vacation that, that week that, you know, creates doubt in my mind, you know, is, is it real? Is it about me? Are they trying to avoid, but the for pointing to the future always made me feel more comfortable. And so after she did that, I started doing that with people to point to the future. Cause I felt guilty when I said no to things being busy it made me feel bad. Yeah. And it, you know, it helps on a number of levels, right? It helps to make the other person feel better because as we know, rejection can feel really bad and you can kind of question, especially in a new relationship, like you said, you know, like maybe this person just doesn't want to hang out, but it also makes it easier to say no when you need to set boundaries because you can feel, you know, you feel that guilt, but it can mitigate your own guilt by saying actually, but I still, you know, want to stay connected to you in some way. Let's do something down the road. You know, I'm still signaling that I like you, that I'm helpful if it's a request for help. Um, and so it, it does make it easier to sort of preserve our own boundaries as well. Mm -hmm. I like when you say signaling, we use that in terms of a treatment called radically open DBT treats really type a perfectionism. And we talk about social signaling. So I like when you talk about signaling, because if people can become more aware of their social signals and what that looks like, it can make relationships just so much more strong, but you need to become aware of what you signal, whether it's closed off open, you know, how, how are your eyes? things like that. So I like that word signal. I think I'm going to continue to use that with clients because self-awareness is so important in all of this. I mean, if you're not self-aware, all of this stuff really is not something that you gain or benefit from, which is such a shame. How does self-awareness play into your participants results? Yeah. So we don't really measure it. And, you know, we we're not like doing interviews with individual participants. We're really averaging across groups to get at these sort of mean differences between groups and in people's expectations and reality. So it is a little different in that way. The interesting thing is we've tried a bunch of measures and so have other researchers to try to identify things that make people better at getting in other people's heads, perspective taking. And because that's really where a lot of this will come from, you know, do I recognize sort of the pressure I'm putting on somebody else when I ask for something, but also like the fact that that person actually is quite happy to help. So all those things going on in that other person's head and really there just are not any really good measures. There are measures out there. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. And so it seems like something we're almost all pretty bad at, you know, reading other people's minds. And the only thing that's been reliably found to make us better is something instead of called uh, perspective getting, 
as opposed to perspective taking. So perspective taking is like, I'm gonna try to figure out what's going on in your head. I'm gonna like guess, right? But when you guess about somebody else, you're just searching your own head and whatever biases you have and whatever expectations you have are gonna play out in that guess, right? And so you're likely to be wrong, but perspective getting is basically just asking like more direct communication. So, you know, saying like, how do you feel? when I say this, you know, what were you thinking about this particular thing? And then not surprisingly, that makes you much more accurate about what's going on in other people's minds, but really there's no sort of that we've found yet, you know, secret individual difference that makes certain people sort of better at knowing what's going on in people's minds and other people. Oh, I mean, that's probably why therapy works so well, because you're so curious in your perspective taking for a long time that you gain so much insight that it's easier to predict people's behaviors. It's easier to kind of predict how they're feeling because you're doing so much perspective, taking through curious and open questions. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess too, the perspective taking, if you meet with people who aren't like you, you probably are more likely to be open-minded and more flexible because you're not going in with these preconceived judgments. So perspective taking on people who are different than you, how does that also improve relationships or the influence? Yeah, that's exactly right. So one of the things I talk about is this perspective getting, right? So not just trying to take perspective, but actually getting someone else's perspective. Um, It's especially important for people who are different from you, right? So part of that is doing things like reading, you know, novels from diverse authors and, you know, listening to people's lived experiences. So it doesn't have to be like actually interviewing one specific person, but it's actually listening to diverse perspectives. So you start to hear from other people's sort of direct experience, you know, okay, this is something that's been going on. So there's also some research showing basically like if I've had the same experience as somebody else. So say I've been through a divorce and I'm talking to someone else who's been through a divorce. I have a tendency to assume that they're experiencing it in the same way that I did, right? Mm-hmm. So if my divorce was really rocky, I'm going to sort of treat that person as if theirs is as well, even if theirs was totally amicable and fine, right? And so mm-hmm. that can actually cause us when we are similar to someone right? To think that we're better at taking their perspectives than we actually are. So it's important for people who are different, but we tend to forget that it's still even important for people who are similar to us and who have had similar experiences so that we don't draw too much on our own experience. Yeah. Well, because if we draw too much on our own experience, obviously we miss half of the picture, but I think it also makes us more comfortable with the other person too, to think that you have like experiences. So there's probably both sides to that where there is a combination because I, I, um, saw your fun fact that you grew up on a farm with a father who's a mechanic. I'm like you. So I grew up on a farm and I did not go to Ivy league school, but I did go to a school very in the urban city of Chicago. And so when I saw that, I immediately felt more comfortable because I thought, well, you know, there's something about being grounded in the, you know, on a farm and a, in a blue collar upbringing and then going more into the professional academic field. So that's interesting that you bring that up because I guess, you know, you imagine like, I think your farm looks like my farm. That's crazy. (laughs) That just doesn't, that just doesn't play out. Yeah. That's a really good example because, um, so similarity, like this is one of the strongest findings in my field, right? Similarity does breed liking and rapport so that it definitely does that. And I'm sure in a therapeutic, you know, setting that rapport is huge. Right. And so it's not that similarity is necessarily all bad. You know, if we, if we've had similar experiences, that makes me want to understand your experience more and might make me more empathetic and might just make me feel more comfortable with you. But then I just have to kind of hold myself back from assuming that you had the same experience. So I'm curious. So what kind of farm did you grow up on? So my parents did not farm. My mom is a huge animal lover and so am I. So when she remarried, when I was in sixth grade, we moved out to a farmhouse where she could have horses, chickens, a koi pond, and whatever animal she wanted. And then the cornfields were just surrounded in central Illinois. So 
I grew up in a town called Ranchville, Illinois. It's north of University of Illinois by like 20 miles. But I could see the Champagne's lights when the corn was down. Mm-hmm. So for 20 miles, it was just, you know, just crops. Four-way stops, no stop signs in my farm area. And then my town was like 10 or 12,000. So it was about 15 minutes to get to like the grocery store. It wasn't terrible. It was hard in high school because no one wanted to drive me home because I lived too far out or my, my boyfriend at the time lived like on the other side of the town on a different farm. So he was like 25 minutes away and it's scary at night to be like driving back and forth with no lights. And, um, you know, everything is like 2,900, 2,300. Like we have a reindeer farm down the road from us, (laughs) corn mazes. So that's, that's kind of how I was raised, but my dad was a police officer in the city. My mom worked as a newspaper manager. So yeah. What kind of farm did you grow up on? You know, some things sound very similar and actually the driving at night on country roads is like, so that was always the bane of my existence. We would go see it. Like I remember seeing scream in high school and driving I home. my back like- seat. Oh my gosh. I always took my back seat. I'm like, scream is going to like pop out. Yes. <laughs> it was like the worst place to drive home after a horror movie. Children of the corn. I don't know if you watched that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was actually a bird farm, which later became a, a, a flower farm. Like, a, um, they had greenhouses and things like that, but it was, um, you know, some things were similar, but we had pheasants. My dad was a big hunter and he raised oh, yeah. pheasant hunting. To, like hunting um, places. And so we had quail and peacocks and all these things. It was, you Where know, I feel like it was kind of gross. New Jersey actually. Okay. Yeah. So well, like, yeah, yeah. Fe- yeah. Pheasant hunting was, I mean, pheasant hunting, even trapping game for squirrel. I mean, it, it, goes deep into the, into into all of the, all of the things. But, um, yeah, I I enjoy going down there now. Like my mom has this beautiful hammock and it's next to the koi pond and she fosters to adopt like abandoned horses and just like loves them. And like, so it's a very different experience, but I think I learned a lot how to kind of navigate different relationships, like talking to, you know, talking to a really hardworking man who's a farmer and then talking to like a really successful professor like yourself and really just valuing how I was raised and like how I chose to live my life because I feel similar enough to a lot of people's experiences because I've traveled to Europe, I've traveled abroad, I've done that. So enough experiences to connect, but like also enough to know that like, I can never fully understand someone's story because it's so different. You listen to people and you're like, you were on a bird farm, like, (laughs) you know, you just get so fascinated by things. So I mean, that's why I'm a therapist. I just could do this all day. Yeah. I think coming from that background and going to an Ivy league school where we're like, you know, analyzing marks. And I was like, I feel like we're talking about my dad in this weird theoretical way. Um, but it definitely helped to sort of be able to talk to lots of different people mm-hmm. yeah. to some extent too. Yeah. 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 Well, I just want to say thank you for being here. And is there anything, is there anything that you really want people to walk away with? I mean, I'd say the biggest thing that I always kind of want people to take from my work and from the book and everything is a sense of reassurance. Because when I reviewed a lot of the literature and reviewed my own studies and studies I've done with collaborators uh, for the book, you know, again and again, it was just these studies showing that whatever we're insecure about, other people are not noticing as much as us when we think that no one sort of notices us and the things that we're doing to try to make a difference, when we think that people, you know, are judging us for how inarticulately we made our point, as opposed to sort of just taking away the main point that we made, you know, all Mm -hmm. these moments where we really doubt ourselves and the impact that we're having on other people. It's often a bias that we're so focused on the negative as we sort of started out talking about And other people are not, and they're taking away a more holistic sort of idea of us. They notice us. They think, okay, that person thinks this, that person did that. And because we're, you know, social beings, that means we are having this impact on other people who are letting that sink in. You know, people do those things. People think these things. And so I think in the end, it just, 
I want people to feel reassured and also a little bit to take away some sense of responsibility for that, that, you know, like people, you, you can't just do anything because people are listening to you. They are noticing you. And so you can have a huge impact like you did, you know, when you posted, like it could have this just incredible, remarkable impact. And then other people can post things that, you know, are actually, you know, very destructive and not realize the kinds of snowball effects that that can have as well. Absolutely. As you're talking and you're pointing out like the golden threads that we had during the podcast, the the pieces that you're pointing out, like what we don't like about ourselves and we criticize about ourselves, like, oh, I missed that mark or, oh, I lost control there or, oh, I wasn't articulate here. Those are the things that actually people listen to a podcast and they're like, they're human too. And when I was at Highland park and I was trying to be strong and like do a shift change with everyone. And I would like have these breakdowns and I would just get so emotional and I hated that. And I broke down with the FBI a couple of times and I hated that, you know, because I wanted to be one way. But then as the days have gone on, people will say like, we just, your emotions were palatable. Like you were a leader, but you were also like feeling all of the things as well. And so it almost allowed them to have room to have emotions or like when I miss a beat and my team sees that it's like, they're allowed to make mistakes now. Like they're allowed to blunder a word, you know? And so I just, I'm walking away very positive because what I'm hearing from you is the things that we don't like about ourselves are like the very things that other people admire as like a human quality. And it's a shame that we try to cover that up because we think that they don't like us or that we're being judged or something. So it's a fascinating like head game, kind of a game of mind reading. Like you said, it doesn't, it doesn't work. We're not very good at it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show today. And, you know, I'm going to be following you. I'm really excited. Just my last question is what's going to be next in your research? Like what could we kind of anticipate? So I have spent about 15 years now looking at how to get people to say yes. And this idea that, you know, people are so much more likely to say yes than we think. And so my more recent research is kind of delving into the flip side of that, where they say yes, because it's really hard to say no. And so what does that mean? And the specific area I've been looking at is what does that mean for getting someone to comply versus consent with things that we ask? So, and do we see sort of consent when the other person doesn't feel like they really consented, they felt they feel like they couldn't really say no and that they were actually more complying with a request. Mm. So getting at that gray area is sort of the next big thing that I've been working on. I would love to watch and follow on that. It's a major conversation in my field. I specialize in eating disorders and we have ethics and discussions about kind of requiring, um, those with anorexia to go inpatient and when is it, is it coercion? Um, when is it kind of coercion is kind of what we're calling it right now. Like, are we coercing people to enter programs that they don't want to enter and then their willingness is down. Therefore they don't cooperate with treatment and then they have a poor discharge result, but they never entered in in willingly. They said yes, because moms and doctors and therapists told them that they have to, but then you get into the medical risks of not doing the recommendations. So there's a lot in my field in anorexia and bulimia as well is coercion of treatment levels of care and recommendations. And also the, the lack of, oper- the lack of, um, choice when it comes to like health and, you know, guardianship and everything. So it's a fascinating conversation in my field. And we're all just trying to delicately figure this out because with mental health, sometimes it looks like coercion when it's life or death. So it's fascinating. I can't wait to see more and read more. How do we keep up with you? Is it Instagram? Is it like a newsletter? How do we keep up with you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Prof Bonds, and I'm also on Instagram, same handle at Prof Bonds, and my website is VanessaBonds.com. Awesome. Well, I know you're gonna be doing some really cool stuff next because the train of thought is like what I see in therapy every day. So people are ready for it. People really want to learn about their brains and how to kind of reframe those negative thoughts that keep them 
held back from their dreams. So thank you so much. And this is another episode of, well, not perfect. Thank you for listening to season three. Make sure you never miss an episode by hitting the subscribe button and consider leaving me a review. And for more information, all things podcast, you can connect with us on Instagram at well, not perfect. See you next week. Bye.